Welcome to Faith, Reason, and Geekdom. I'm your genuflexer, Roger. Join me as we work out these three perspectives in our culture. Now that's what I call Christian genuflexing. Iliad. This is part one of Homer's The Iliad discussion we will be exploring in this podcast episode. What can we work out from our faith, reason, and geekdom side from the Iliad? In fact, all three of the perspectives will be hit because they are entangled throughout this entire discussion. The main points we're going to explore is what is the Iliad and why should we even care or why do we care? Also, a brief summary of the plots point by point as we move on in the story. What are the themes and takeaways from the Iliad? This is going to be a fun discussion. Very engaging. Hopefully, you guys will learn something. Hopefully, you guys are going to have fun digging digging deep into this. We could do hours and hours, many episodes and many episodes upon, but I wanted to keep it short, so just two podcasts because this is... I mean, it's Homer's the Iliad. We can do entire hours, episodes of this. We could go on and on. But let's start with this. Homer's the Iliad is one of the earliest literature canon in the Western civilization. Came from um, oral poems. So probably during religious festivals, over many days of religious festivals, it was being told. And this was very important to pass down information to pass down the culture and to pass down the education, uh, particularly young boys growing up in the uh, Greek times. It was also used as a reference point in their culture. Then when it was written down in Greek, uh, most likely the 8th century BC, the last year of the Trojan War, that's what we're going to be discussing once it was finally written down. The Greeks versus the Trojans. We know the story. Helen, daughter of Zeus, wife of Menelaus, was taken by Paris, a younger brother of Hector, the greatest Trojan warriors, son of Priam. On the Greek side, Agamemnon, leader of the expedition to Troy, the battle, the siege to go on, located in the northwestern corner of what is modern-day Turkey, and accompanied by Peleus' son, Achilles, the great Greek warrior, son of the goddess Thetis the sea goddess. The story focuses mainly on the quarrel between uh, Achilles and Agamemnon and the continually evenly balanced war. Remember, this is only focusing on, on a particular episode in the last year of the war. Many, many other books, some of them we do not have and did, did not survive Antiquity did not survive the ancient uh, writings and passing down. It was very strenuous. Some of them are lost forever, but we do have little like footnotes of them. And that's why we know a lot of the other stories surrounding the whole myth or legend of the Trojan War. Now, these epics stood the test of time. Remember, this is very, very difficult. You had to be you had to handwrite copies of the books. So this shows that it was actually worth it. For this to survive this long, imagine 
having it they talk about carpal tunnel people had a copy it was very very difficult process and this should be taken to note how this survived this long because a lot of stuff is not this has influence on all arts in the western cultures most books from the ancient times didn't survive for example sophocles wrote about 120 tragedies we only have seven have survived only seven think about that the bible the most attested of the ancient world the second to the bible is the iliad we have hundreds of manuscripts compared to thousands of the bible taking this from the the faith perspective scripture the earliest fragments we have of the iliad is about 500 years after the fact you compare that to a full complete manuscript from the uh, about around the 10th century AD of the Iliad the Bible written down within a hundred years so close to the time people were alive that wrote about this John and unlike the Iliad we have the first complete Bible by the third century AD not to mention about an estimated 1 million quotes from the New Testaments in the writings of the church fathers between you know AD 150 to uh, 1300. Also, too, for example, the earliest copies of the works of the prominent historian Suetonius. Think about that. Over 800 years after the original manuscripts have even been written, not even close compared to scripture. The Iliad. Also, I just want to note that Iliad is not a religious text, unlike the Bible, but it was very, very, very important to the Greeks. And we're going to be going through this time and time again but i'm going to be pulling sometimes i'm going to call to note when i'm making a point from the faith from the reason and from the geekdom side but most of the time it's all tangled it's going to flow in and out so i i most of the time i won't brought uh, bring to attention that but again from the faith perspective the bible the bible is extremely uh, historic accurate i mean even bart ehrman in some of his writings even attests to the accuracy even if there's small little differences pretty much they estimate about 98 percent is so close to what it means in the bible so the reason i bring up that is because the iliad is often brought up along with the bible in comparing it when it comes to what survives from antiquity what survives from the ancient world so we can trust the bible but going back to the iliad it's so compared to the bible very very close comparisons people like to make of it and so that's why i want to bring it up and hopefully we we understand that especially as people of faith take a step back at that think about how grand and how big that is and again the iliad so influential so important to the greeks again not holy scriptures to them but very very important the homeric question now there is a debate among scholars but most do lean towards that uh, you know, this is probably made up of many short stories, short poems, and was later compiled and complete to form the Iliad. Now, there is uh, the other side, you know, there's one camp that says, no, that, you know what, there is, there was a real Homer, an actual, a real Homer that had this storyline and completed it and finished it off that this shows of design and there was a designer, Homer. Now, some people within that camp do say that, well, maybe the Iliad was composed by one person and then the Odyssey by another person, a completely different person. But that's just a small little thing within the camp of itself. But it is different from the other camp of scholars. And there's both on both sides that say that Homer 
probably didn't exist. And again, this was just oral poems that have been compiled over time. 1795, Friedrich Wolff uh, published many books and works on that, saying that, no, yeah, it was compiled from one person, and that's how the great epics that we know and we love today uh, came about. And in the 1920s, uh, Milton Perry, Perry had some research, research coming out in support of saying, well, no, there wasn't really a real Homer per se. Again, just collections of works tied through time, through uh, religious festivals and, and stories and education and all this stuff, and then compounding it later, you know, making, you know, the 24 standard books or, or 24, you know, uh, manuscripts because this remember Homer was uh, supposedly write, writing these these stories about 400 years after and the Trojan War for the purposes of this episode we're going to treat Homer as if he was a real historical person that existed because again there is some on both sides but for the purpose of that Iliad uh, was compiled from uh, one guy and that guy Homer awesome guy who gave us uh, this great work of influence on uh, Western culture. And again, I just want to say that I love the epithets of Homer. I mean, so great. Swift-footed Achilles, Hector, glancing helmets. There's so many different epithets they had. Now let's get into the actual story of the Iliad. Rage, wrath, the beginning of the Iliad, so incredible. Interesting enough, in Greek, the, the, the wrath, Manus, used in throughout the story mainly to describe the wrath of the gods he's again Peleus is his dad and he's just a human just like us regular guys his mom is a sea goddess but it's interesting that in the beginning they use wrath they use that particular word that greek word that usually is designed for the gods so immediately it kind of sets achilles apart and lets you guys know that hey this is no ordinary guy. This is not just an ordinary guy. So it gets in. And also, again, this is the last year of the 10-year Trojan War. And so Homer goes into it assuming that we know about the Trojan War pre and the middle and all that stuff. He's assuming. He's going into it. We're just looking at a small episode of the entire war, really, if you think about it, mainly focusing on Achilles and the quarrel between him, him and Agamemnon. In the Homeric epics and the hero fighting, usually two things that they fight for is one is Time, which is translated as honor. The other one is Kleos, could be translated as glory. And these two things are different than our uh, concept of honor and glory. Theirs is a little bit different. Like Time, is more of a tangible, it's a zero-sum game. Somebody could have more teammate than you, it's not an internal thing. Usually we get this and when they sack a city, they get them in the form of slaves, women, all the kind of stuff that's given, it could be given and it could be taken away. One high form is called geros, the Greek, geros. And it's usually, it's kind of translated as in prize of honor. Now, this is important because in the quarrel between Agamemnon and swift-footed Achilles, he takes away Achilles' prize, his, his geros, prize of honor, Bruseus, the slave woman. He takes her away, and one part could just be, you know, the two dudes 
you know, two dudes fighting over a woman and there could be some type of jealousy, you know, um, sexually, you know, all that being being taken away from his his slave woman that he honored. It, it, it's his, his garros and his teammate. His honor has been taken. Honor and glory is pretty much what the warrior ethic, the warrior uh, to quote Mandalorian. This is the way. This is what they fight for. And for Agamemnon to take that away from Achilles, one of the greatest warriors. He's thinking about, he, he's like the Michael Jordan in the 90s. Okay, he's the, he is the greatest warrior the Greeks have ever seen. He is amazing. He does all of these special things that he's, again, he's, he's half a, a deity. But Agamemnon is the leader of the expedition. He is not the king of kings, as somebody might think or call him. Because, again, in, in, during this time in, in Homer's epic, the Greeks are not like one united front. There's kings and kings and a bunch of kings. And they're not united. It's not like one you know, entire Greek army and he is the king. He just happens to be the leader. So, in a sense, he is kind of... Uh, for the purposes of this expedition or this fight in Troy, he uh, Achilles could be seen as kind of you know kind of being under him. Huge upfront to be taken away his garros. Everyone sees this. It's very shameful for Achilles. Rage, wrath, wrath of the gods. You know, so it's very important to to know these two things: glory and honor, Timae and Kleos. One reason why Agamemnon does this is because his garros, his klesais, uh, I know that the very similar sounding words, his slave woman, also uh, one of the daughters of the priests of the Apollo, was taken away and he was forced to give her back. So his teammate, Agamemnon's teammate, was taken away. His honor was taken away. Uh, but, but again, he had to do it because of a god, because the gods uh, pretty much told him he had to. So I know it's different, but Agamemnon is trying to get some of his teammate back because, again, Kleos, uh, Kleos, glory. Now, that's what people say about you. It's like an immortality. And if you get less teammate or teammates taken away, your honor how what are people going to say about you that's kleos your glory what are the people going to say after you die what's your legacy pretty much both of them had to return their slave womans that they had so that's kind of gives you a background of why he would do this to achilles who's again one of the awesome the the goat who he is pretty much the goat in this uh poem remember two very different things agamemnon was pretty much forced if unless he wanted Apollo to continue throwing plague, killing his men to return the slave woman to her father. Otherwise, he would get plague. I think that's a pretty good... I, I think you should return her. The only way that he's hurt from his Garros being taken away, his teammate being taken away, that threatens his uh, Kleos, is for him to show, hey, I'm the leader of this expedition. So for me, the only thing I can do is to take away the greatest warrior... Achilles, swift-footed Achilles' teammate, and take away uh, Briseis, his slave woman, even though it's very two different things. So this pisses off Achilles. So Achilles appears, uh, appeals to his mother, uh, Thetis, the goddesses, to appeal to Zeus to have the Trojans temporarily defeating, defeating the Greeks. So they can, so Achilles could show them, 
how much they really need him to fight this battle. Otherwise, they would lose. And so petitions to his mother, who then petitions to Zeus to temporarily grant the Trojans pretty much reign on the Achaeans, the Greeks. So this is very important, very interesting. This is a kind of battle. This kind of sets it up. This sets up everything else. Fate, that is something that we can pull from this. It's a very big thing. That's what it's about also. And we see this when, you know, again, when Achilles Achilles decides to leave. He doesn't want to fight. He withdraws from the fight and says, I'm no longer going to fight. I'm going to take my men and I'm going to sail home. I withdraw from the fight. He wants to reestablish his importance to get back his honor, his glory. Because in this culture, the Greek, it's a very, it's a culture that's built on what other people's think and say about you. That is the whole Greek uh, warrior ethos. That's the whole Greek warrior mindset is uh, the Timae and Kleos, is what what do people say about you? What are they going to say about you when you die? And faith, that's why when Thetis goes to Zeus to appeal, we see faith. Because in the story, Zeus knows that Troy is going to fall. It's even the audience, Homer's the audience that Homer's getting to, we all know that, hey, it's fate that Troy will fall. It will fall. The humans on the ground, many of them don't know that, but it's fate. You can't stop it. Now, Zeus can. It, it t- kind of talks about how Zeus can can uh, change things on the way over there. He could change the paths. He could change the how it happens or, or certain things he can do, but he cannot change the outcome. The, the final outcome is, is Troy will fall, the Greeks will win, but that's why uh, the goddess mother of Achilles appeals to him to temporarily uh, do something about that, that, okay, I know Troy's going to fall, but until then, show my son's importance, give him back his honor and glory. And that's what we see faith, that faith cannot be changed now, going into book three, Homer paints the the enemies of the Achaeans. That's the word for Greeks for, for Homer. Um, it shows them as, as actually a good light. It shows them in a sympathetic, very sympathetic characters. For just like one example, you have, of course, obviously uh, Hector, who is a father, who is a loving father, a loving husband, a good older brother, a good son, who's... The people love him in Troy. They really love Hector. He's a very, very sympathetic character. And also, don't forget they're fighting a defensive war, per se, uh, because the Achaeans are going to their home. They're attacking their lands. Even Priam, when Helen goes to sit by them and they're observing the battles and they're having their talk, he calls her dear child. He He's very, very polite, very nice to his uh, daughter-in-law. Another very sympathetic character. So it's very interesting because they're writing about their enemies. You know, usually they would just make them maybe seem like barbarians and these evil people that that the Achaeans, the Greeks, they must fight, you know. But they're not. They're actually, it shows a lot. It shows a lot, says a lot about uh, Homer and the writings, you know. And in in this one, you have book three, you have where uh, Menelaus is going to fight Paris, you know, they're going to do that. I don't know if you've seen a movie, Troy. I love that movie. I'm not going to really talk about that movie down the road in the future. I will be talking about Troy. It's one of my favorite movies. But you know, we've seen that scene where he's he's fighting, you know, and Paris, you know, they're doing this duel, you know, they're doing this duel. So so anyway, in, in the, the Iliad, the book, they're doing this duel and obviously Menelaus is going to win. He's just 
and Paris is about to get killed. He's about to he's about to die. You know, he's about to get stabbed. He's about to just get cut up. He just beat Aphrodite, the goddess, comes in and saves Paris. She saves Paris, swifts him away into his bedroom. And then later on, we see that she goes to Helen and Helen is very reluctant. You know, she's very reluctant. She's not happy. She is not happy. You've heard saying happy wife, happy life. Right now, she's not happy. Paris is not making her happy at all. Aphrodite's convince her and pretty much threatens her. Say, hey, you're going to go over here. You know, pretty much threatens her because Helen doesn't even pretty much doesn't even want to be there no more. You know, she understands that, you know, this all this fighting and war is going on pretty much because of her. And she walks around, she feels guilty. But again, she is the most beautiful woman in the world. So even the Trojans understand and even they get it like, well, she is stunning and the most beautiful woman in the world who wouldn't fight this war for her. So even they're kind of, you know, kind of open to her. Troy is fighting for their survival. They're fighting for their survival. And you see Hector and Andromache. In the one of the most famous memorable scenes in the Iliad, where they're talking, and Andromache is begging Hector not to go back and fight, to stay, not to fight, and he is there saying that I must, I must fight because we're fighting for our survival, and he shows a very human emotion that he says, I know, you know, I know Troy will fall. It, he doesn't actually know it, you know, even though that's true, he doesn't actually know it. But then later he, he with almost, I think within the same sentence, he says, but I hope my son will, or I pray that my son grow up, grows up to be a better man than me. It's a very sympathetic, sympathetic character. And he's talking to his wife, Andromache. What, what bothers him the most is not that, you know, Troy will fall and his parents will get killed and all this other bad stuff will happen and he'll lose his life and all the other people but that his wife would be taken into slavery which does happen he's being very prophetic the trojans and the greeks uh, also pray to the same gods some gods are on the greek side some gods are on the trojan side but it's very interesting because she knows she's begging him not to go back and fight in battle stay his wife knows that Achilles has killed pretty much all of her family and all he's all that he has left them and their son. And we know the tragic ending that happens to his family all over uh, pretty much an adulterous uh, relationship with Paris and Helen, which as in our faith as Christians, we know that adultery is is bad. It's one of the Ten Commandments. It's a, it's a big one. It's a, you would say it's a biggie. Yeah, it's a biggie. I, I would definitely say that it's a biggie. And so in our Christianity, we know that that is, is, a, is, a, is a grave mortal sin. And we know that it leads to many destructions. And not, not, not of course, you know, not a great war, 10-year war. I'm not saying all that. But we know that it's something that we need to turn to turn from the temptation if we have temptation we must stick to our vows and that's why you know when jesus tells us about our vows and that we're one woman you know one woman one man that we are to to submit to each other he's given us a very very good and very strict bond the marriage the matrimony bond you know and helen has broken that as as so as Paris has gotten himself involved with a married woman. All of this fighting 
And again, Helen doesn't even really want to be there. It, it's so fickle. It's it's such a fickle, you know, Paris has bedded many women. And, and as our faith teaches us, adultery is wrong. And this all stems pretty much from adultery. Uh, it's very, very interesting how how it, it touches on that. And, and it's a shame. It's a shame in, in this stories, in this book, in this epic poem that the Trojans will lose everything because we know what's going to happen. Zeus knows what's going to happen. The readers know what's going to happen, that Troy will fall. But until then, we have the the journey and the drama of the humans on the ground. Now, as we continue, the battle rages on. And it's um, this is this is like I mean, this is like saving Private Ryan. You know, this is this is like that movie. This is just epic. I mean, it's blood and gore. I mean, there's 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 slicing and dicing. There's epic battles, people getting killed left and right. You have, I mean, if you know one of the, the Greek warriors who's one of the top biggest best warriors other than Achilles is Ajax, and he's he's just wrecking shop. This is an epic battle. Very, very brutal too. Very brutal. People are getting stabbed through the neck, through the through the head. Just very brutal. The war's raging on and on. And as as we noted earlier, Achilles has withdrawn from the fighting to make his importance known. So at this point, as the battle rages on, and it goes long, it goes really long. Very action scene. You know, big action. Back and forth, you do see that the Greeks are starting to lose. They're getting they're getting pummeled. I mean, they're getting pummeled, beat to a pulp. All the battles, people are dying. People are getting killed, and people either pretty much get a little nicks, cuts, or they're dead. There's really no in between. There's really no like uh, wounds that uh, Homer doesn't show wounds that will get you like maybe sent home, your arm cut off. No, it's either little nicks and you're right back. You're almost like a respawning. You're right back in the fighting or Homer shows just brutal. You're dead. You're, you're bleeding out. You're done. You're dead. And and I think that that points to death. He's showing the bru- the brutality of war. He's it's about death too. This uh, don't forget. This is very. It's about faith. We talked about. It's also about uh, death. And yes, it is about war. And it's about accepting death. It's about the human uh, nature. What what are we made for? What are we? Who are we? What are we doing? It's about uh, jealousy. It's about honor. It's about all these things. But yes, obviously about war, spears, swords. The Greeks are losing. And you know, in, in uh, book nine, when book nine comes around, Agamemnon actually considers maybe if they should just turn around and go home because they are losing so bad and they cannot get Achilles back on. So Nestor, uh, one of the figures, one of the people, the characters in the book, a very wise person, uh, also, you know, he have o- Odysseus, who's like a master strategist. And we all know about Odysse- Odysseus, you know, so this is Nestor. And Nestor says, you know, to Agamemnon, we, we got to get Achilles back. We are losing. It's not looking good for us. We got to get our best warrior. We got to get him back in play. We got to get him back on play. And Agamemnon decides, says, fine, you know, and he, I mean, he's like the Oprah. He's like the Greek Oprah. He's like, you get concubine, you get gold, you get this. And he's offering this huge list, the absolute most best uh, reward, rewards and honor and, and givenness. He's even going to give back Briseis to Achilles. He's going to give him all these goals. He's going to give him 12 of the best pick concubines from Troy. Once they get, once it gets sacked, he says he can load his ship with as much gold. He's given in uh, what 12 cauldrons. He's giving them all this and he's just throwing it at him. 
just to get Achilles back on board because they they really do need him at this point in the the story. So Agamemnon sends an embassy. They send Phoenix, who is Achilles' stepfather who raised him so they can appeal to that. He's like his stepdad. He can appeal to him raising him, him growing up. He's a stand-in to for his father, Achilles. And uh, Ayas, who is arguably second greatest warrior um, next to, to Achilles. So he could appeal to that warrior spirit. He could appeal to that, uh, that old, you know, brothers in arms kind of, hey, we need you back on there. Come on, be back on the team. And then obviously uh, Odysseus, he sends Odysseus because Nestor is the wisest. But Odysseus is, Odysseus is the most clever. He's the most, his rhetoric is legendary. His rhetoric is known across Greek lands, known across even farther than that for his rhetoric. Odysseus, very clever, master, uh, strategist, you know, and also the main character in the Odyssey. So you have these three, Phoenix, Ayas, and Odysseus, trying to gather, going to appeal to Achilles, going to get him to back on the team, it does not work because Achilles doesn't matter. He lost. He, he's starting to rethink the whole warrior ethos. He's trying to rethink the whole Team A and Kleos mentality of the Greek warriors. He's starting to doubt it. He doesn't want to fight for it no more. He's he's pretty much like done. He's done. Even he's going to get Briseis back. He's going to get all this money. He's going to get all this gold. He's going to get first the 20 picks of Troy conquered by all, all the stuff that we discussed. He's going to get everything. But it's not enough. It's not enough. And these three men, even Odysseus, as great rhetoric as he has, as clever, as Phoenix, as his stepdad, and Ayas as a brother in arms, even they cannot corral Achilles from his rage his wrath. Now this is very interesting of this this alliance of these group of men trying to convince Achilles to come back after they have their dinner and everything. They each make their turn and they appeal to to in different ways, you know, Odysseus is like if you don't care about, you know, getting back Briseis, you don't care about the gold, the money, well then you do it for your your Kleos, do it for your glory. Think about it when you kill Hector, how much glory you will have. What will people say about you? You'll be immortalized forever. He's trying to appeal to that and he's not hearing it. Um, you know, his his foster father, you know, is his foster father is trying to appeal to him like look what i've done for you i've raised you i've helped you i've held you you spit up on me all of this stuff you know and his foster father can get through to him and and it's interesting because achilles says something that not too many humans are almost almost no humans could know is their faith he says that his mother his goddess sea goddess's mother has told him his two faith his fate he could either one he could stay and fight and die but his kleos will be forever he will be immortalized his will have immense glory forever warriors ever and and his name will be said for thousands and thousands and thousands of years or he could take in get in the ship sail home back to his home back to his country and he can forget time and kleos and he will lose all of that he will lose that but he will live a long happy life he rejects everything, so he chooses, he says, he decides to do, to return home and just live a long life without honor and glory. And that's what he did. He rejects the warrior mindset. 
everyone has a time and place to die. Everybody knows that, but they know it. They accept it. They accept if, if a warrior's gonna die on the battlefield, they accept. Hey, we're about to die. Let's get as much glory as we can. It's my time. The gods has set this this fate. That's what they say. It is fate that this has happened when they die. So they accept that. And the gods are immortal. The gods in these Greek gods, they're immortal. They 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 can't have these certain things like humans can have uh, glory and time and courage. The gods of of the Greeks they can't because they're immortal, but humans can. So they just accept their fate of dying. Achilles has chosen to abandon that glory. But Ayas actually appeals to him and gets to him. Think about all your, your fellow men. Think about all this stuff. It, uh, so much we died. We've done for you. You fought with us. He tries to get to them. And finally, you know, Achilles kind of gives them, throws them a bone and says, you know what? Okay, fine. You know what? I will not return home. But I will not fight in the war until, until the Trojans have come to him and come to their shore, come to the ships that they're staying at, come to their camps, their ships, and set them on fire. Then he will fight, in essence, in essence, a defensive war. He will only fight in defense. So he kind of throws them a bone. They ultimately fail, really. They ultimately fail. So they go back, Odysseus and them, they go back, and they tell Agamemnon, and of course he is not happy. The quarrel goes on. The fighting continues. The bloodshed. The bloodshed continues. You see death everywhere. We know that we will die one day. And in our Christianity and our faith shows us that we must accept that. We must accept and we must move on. And later on, we will talk about accepting and moving on. But but this is very, very, very important. Very important to, to note is the acceptance. We do believe that we will be resurrected at the end of time body soul you know body our bodies will be resurrected as our lord jesus christ has been resurrected so it's very important to have that hope have that hope whereas uh, the greeks they have different gods they have hades but very important to say very different from we're, we're monotheists you know and they're they're not they're polytheists so achilles Agreed only to fight a defensive battle, not fully convinced by Odysseus, his foster father, and Ios, his fellow warrior. Not fully convinced. Swift-footed Achilles. I love that epithet, by the way. That's one of the fate one of my favorite ones. We we talked about different characters, not all of them. Some of them we will mention. In the upcoming episode, some of them we have touched on. We might go a little bit deeper into them more. But just to kind of give a little look back before we kind of move forward, it's, it's the characters that are in the Iliad. Most of you guys have heard of them. I think we touched on uh, most of them. But just to go real quick through a little bit of them, you know, you have different characters. Obviously, we know some of the big ones. Like we talked about Achilles. His friend um, Patroclus, who we'll mention briefly in a little bit, and then go, instant, go into it more depth in the next episode. Best, best, great friend. You know, of course, Agamemnon, the commander-in-chief, if you will, of the Greek forces, you know, brother of Menelaus. Um, remember, like we said, that he's the one that took uh, Briseis away. Okay, he's the one, and there's no unified king of Greek per se, but in this expedition, he is like the commander-in-chief. Also, we have Andromache, 
the wife of Hector, mother, Aphrodite, daughter of Zeus. You know, we we talked about her. She is the goddess of sexual passion. Uh, she's the one that kind of motivates and give influences over Paris uh, with the abduction of Helen and pretty much starts off the, the whole Trojan War. Apollo, son of Zeus, twin brother of uh, Artemides, kind of uh, on the Trojan side, you know, he inflicts plague. He has something to do with prophecy. He can be identified later on with the sun also. Ares, of course, son of Zeus and Hera, god of war. You guys know about Ares. If you guys ever played the game God of War, I'm sure many of you guys have. Fun, 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 fun game. He's associated, of course, with war. Artemides, you know, daughter of Zeus, twin sister of Apollo, a virgin goddess. Athena, daughter of Zeus. She is the goddess of warfare. Certain noble aspects of virgin goddess associated with wisdom, uh, cleverness. She becomes engaged in this story, entangled with, you know, the story of Troy very much. Diomedes, you know, he's coming in in the earlier books. We didn't really mention him. He is a great Greek warrior. He actually wounds in the story Ares and Aphrodite during one of the battles, the exchanges early on in the story. So we, we, there's no time to go into every single warrior. So some of them we cannot get in depth. There's so many, of course, Hades, brother of Zeus, you know, the ruler of the underwar, Hector, crown prince of Troy, Helen, of course, uh, the daughter of Zeus, most beautiful woman in the world. And that's pretty much what set it off with her in Paris, of course, you know, younger brother of Hector, uh, son of Priam, Hera, wife and sister of Zeus, kind of a little, little bit of uh, Game of Thrones going on there. But, you know, you know, uh, she's um, uh, she's a patron goddess of marriage and married women. So there's that, you know, even though, you know, there's kind of a <laughs> weird little thing going on there, but. There's just so many different characters and so many of, of the gods, which we'll go into later. You have uh, Menelaus, of course, brother of Agamemnon, husband of Helen, who was, you know, taken away. Nestor, the oldest and wisest, the wisest of the Greeks. Odysseus, Odysseus, who comes to fame in the, the Odyssey. He is the cleverest and craftiest of the Greeks, a very important character in the Iliad, of course, Paris, you know, you have Priam. Think about all the stuff that Priam had to deal with. His sons, the lost uh, Poseidon, brother of Zeus, goddess, god of the sea. He is very much involved in the battle, battles, very much involved in it, in the entire thing. Of course, Zeus, the ruler of Olympus, you know, brother and husband of Hera, uh, Hera brother of Hades, Poseidon, father of Aphrodite, Apollo, Ares, Artemis, many others, you know, also um, have goddess too all over. His, his, his son actually, we'll talk about him a little bit in the upcoming as we go through in the books. So he's like the sky god, you know, he uh, controls thunder and lightning, patron of justice. So those are just some of the, the characters that we kind of just kind of refresh or go through as we continue to move on. And again, some of these characters we won't even mention. We would have to have about six hours to go through this Iliad story. It's very, very extensive. Patroclus, we'll, we'll talk about him, the friend of, of Achilles. 
Okay, so this poem is about what it means to be human, the reality of death and how we accept death. This will come up very, very, very soon in the next episode. Extensively, we'll talk about that. How to accept death. Kleos is what is said about you out loud, especially in death. Especially in death. People talk about you. What do people say about you? What, what is your story handed down? Kleos apathy can be translated to mean imperishable glory. You know, in other languages, there is also like a word related to imperishable, imperishable glory. Uh, for example, like in Sanskrit, there is a word like that. So it, it kind of goes back to the Greek that uh, kleos apathe. And that is, that is greater than just regular kleos. This is, again, imperishable glory. So it's usually gain and death. You know, it's inflicted, how you inflict death or both. Usually it's hand in hand how much death you inflict and your death that you achieve the ultimate kleos apathy, imperishable glory. Now the Greeks understand that they must die, right? This is not a Christian society where they believe in a paradise, a paradise and that we will live on our bodies resurrected and we'll have our whole soul and our body and be united in happiness. This is a little different, okay? So they understand that they're going to die, you know, they're going to be killed. So why not take Kleos? Why not take as much of Kleos and Time as possible? Why are they on earth? Usually during battle, during battle, you know? So it's very unusual that Achilles now rejects this. Remember, that's why he, he rejects all of this now. So he's, he's doing a huge rejection of the culture in that time. Now, it's interesting because, you know, the gods cannot gain Kleos because they can't, they can't die. You know, they're called the deathless ones. You know, humans are dead as soon as they are born, pretty much, in the blink of a eye, in the eye compared to the gods, Zeus, Poseidon, all of them. They are called the dying ones, the human compared to the deathless ones, the gods. Now imagine this battle. Imagine the battle. I mean, you're sand, dirt, blood dripping into the sand, the hotness, the hotness, the sweat dripping down these warriors, these, these, these Trojans fighting with the Achaeans, hair and blood getting twisted all over the, 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 the sword being thrusted into the rib cages chomped about chopping just meat human meat all over the place spears being thrusted and thrown the fear imagine the heartbeat of these men and that's what we've seen in this story it's like in all these different books the battles that go on imagine the fear blood sweat and fear and spit and just dead bodies rotten all over the ground the dirt the sand now, the gods also intervene on both sides. So while all this stuff is happening, the blood, guts, and glory, for some are on the Greeks, and some are for the Trojans, like Apollo, Aphrodite, are very much helping the Trojans, and you know the gods are split. But ultimately, most of them go with the will of Zeus, and that's going to be his will, and you see how Zeus kind of plays both sides. We will talk more about the gods in the next episode. We touched on faith, reason, and geekdom in this episode. Pulling, drawing, all three were intertwined. We're just talking about the Iliad alone. The faith, 
talking about everything involved with that, the reason, the literary giant that the Iliad is, geekdom. I mean, there's been comic books, there's been movies, there's been so many. I mean, the DC is, which is actually my favorite. I love DC and Marvel, but DC is my number one thing, especially their animated series. You guys should really check that out, especially Wonder Woman, very into the Greek mythos. And that's one reason why I like the DC a little bit better, but love them both. But it's so much in the culture, pop culture, the Iliad, so much into that. So we touched on all three of these got things. Once again, I want to thank you guys for joining me in this faith, reason, and geekdom. Christian genuflexing. That's what this is about. You guys, please get us subscribe. Give a five-star review on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, most of the platforms. Please leave messages, email the show, look at the show notes. Thank you guys. And next time we're going to get into a lot more. And that's going to be the end of our show. Godspeed. Godspeed.